and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, hello everyone, good day, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world or beyond. Maybe I've got someone listening from that secret Mars base that I was posting about on Instagram, or maybe the... Uh, the uh, the group from Iron Skies is listening from the dark side of the moon. Who knows? Who knows who hears this? Deep in your underground bunkers, whoever may be listening, trying to keep a pulse on what we're talking about, you know we're talking about you. So folks, I do hope everyone is doing well. I'm back like that week old turkey from Thanksgiving that just won't go away, just won't die. I'm still here, still kicking, and still trying to get out some content for you got a couple of things that I wanted to say really quickly before we get very far into the show. The first one was, I made a boo-boo. And when I say I made a boo-boo, it's just that there was a whole group of listeners out there that I wasn't even acknowledging. So for those of you that don't know a lot about the actual mechanics of podcasting and distributing podcasts, when you go and you sign up on something like Anchor or one of these other podcast sites, they basically tell you, hey, look, we'll distribute for you, which is great, especially for people like me who are IT Crow Magna. But uh, the thing is, they only distribute to a few uh, platforms. So Apple is always one. Um, I think Spotify is on the list and a few others. But anything else, you have to go and manually upload your show, uh, basically send them a email, usually an email with your RSS feed and all of that and say, hey, look, I'd really like to be on your platform. Well, I signed up a long time ago uh, on a platform that is called Audio Mac. And each week I get an email saying, it for some reason, the, the listeners on Audio Mac really enjoy the Chicago O'Hare episode that I did. Way back, I want to say in season two, it's been quite a while, but I didn't realize that that episode alone through AudioMax, so not counting Apple and all the other sites, has been listened to a thousand times on AudioMac, and I went and checked out what's going on over there at AudioMac, and I had quite a few nice comments from people and people saying they enjoyed the show and doing what they call re-upping the show, tweeting or reposting someone's stuff, so... Hey, uh, to all those listeners out there who catch me on AudioMac, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And, I mean, there's some amazing listens on there from Ecuador, Ghana, Costa Rica, Chile, Brunei, uh, all over the world, Ukraine, Guatemala, and many, many others. So thank you so much. I just wanted to say, folks, <laughs> the fact that I've never acknowledged AudioMac is it's not it's not anything of a slight for you, the listeners. It's just a matter of all of these different platforms that you have to go up and manually sign up for. And there's been at least 10 or 15. I mean, this is why you can find the Paranormal Sun throughout Africa. It's because I had to go out and find a podcast affiliate in Africa. Also in India, same thing. I wanted to make sure that the show was available for people all over the world. And I mean, why not? I cover news articles and I cover topics in Africa, in Asia, Europe, South America, North America, everywhere. Australia, obviously, New Zealand. So I want to make sure that it's out there for the audience. 
And I just wanted to say to you people, though, that have been listening on Audio Mac, thank you very much. I do have a bit of an issue with Audio Mac. For some reason, I signed up for their creators program, and they told me I'm not the creator of the Paranormal Sun. So I don't know, folks. Maybe uh, I've got a clone running around out there who's taken control of uh, all of my... Maybe I've got a doppelganger who's decided to take control of my uh, my accounts. Who knows? But I'll get to the bottom of it. I'll just send them a nice email saying, uh, excuse me, I'm definitely the creator, founder, host, CEO, managing director, whatever you want to call it, of Tower Studios. And I am the only person who owns and distributes the Paranormal Sun. So, yeah, if you got an issue with that, then, um, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. So anyway, uh, like I say, folks, thank you to everyone out there who's listening, not only on Audio Mac, obviously, but everywhere, wherever you listen, however you listen. I had a really nice message from John in Perth, Western Australia. John got a hold of me, joined the group on Facebook, and sent me a really nice message, just basically saying he really enjoys what I do. John's originally from Minnesota, and uh, so thanks, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell me that you appreciate the show. I mean, folks, as I say, when I started this, I started it with the goal, really, of telling people about some of these cases and and news stories and things that have always really astounded me. And yes, don't get me wrong, like I say, Roswell's important, Kecksburg's important, Bigfoot's important, all, all of those things are important. But there are so many people out there that cover those cases and those things that's why we don't do that every week here. Now, when we do do it, you know it here at the Paranormal Sun, and it's a deep dive, and it's very thorough. It is the <laughs> it is the challenger deep of podcasts. I mean, there are a few others out there I know that do really long-form programs and do a lot of research and work on what they do as well, and I tip my cap to them. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. So, for example, you know, some I'm sure some of you are asking yourselves, well, where's the rest of the Betty and Barney Hill um, <laughs> program? Well, that's the thing. That wormhole is so deep. Once I started getting into it, I just wanted to present it properly. So, yeah, sure, I could have done a 90-minute or I could have done a couple of hour-long shows or even two-hour-long shows, but I'd rather take my time and get it right. And also, just like you folks, you know, I do have a life outside of the show. Not much of a life. But I do have a little bit of a life outside of the show. And so things come up, and the type of research that I do is quite heavy and is quite onerous. It takes a lot of time. And this is why I've said to you time and time again from the beginning, when the time comes for me to go back to work, short of that Russian oligarch or Chinese billionaire or lottery winner that wants to sponsor the show full time, it is really, we're going to have to ask ourselves hard questions about how we format the show, i.e., do I do it less often? Do we have more segments like tonight, more News of the Dam segments, whereas basically I can hop on the mic and give you something? What is it that I should do and how should I do it? Because time will be of the essence when that time comes. But we haven't quite crossed that bridge yet. Big sponsor who's come along to say, hey, just do the show. Don't worry about your bills. Who knows? Hey, it, it's happened to other people, so maybe one day we will get there. But uh, the reality is, like I say, when that day comes, and 
I would say it's probably pretty high odds in 2022. The workforce, short of something inexplicable happening. And again, it's <laughs> I never rule it out because inexplicable things have been happening for the last two plus years for me and so many other people around the world. But anyway, folks, um, tonight, like I say, we're going to have a News of the Damned episode. I will be recording in the near future with Timmy and Dave. That's our plan anyway, is to record the New Year's 2021 program. It's getting to become a yearly tradition. So if you have got your predictions, you've got anything that you want on that show, you need to get them into me straight away because we plan on recording uh, basically around 24 hours from this episode, when this episode comes out. So if you've got any last-minute predictions you want to get in, send them through. It's just TPS, the letters TPS predictions at gmail.com. Just send them through. You can send them on social media, but it's so much easier if I just get them in an email. So, folks, uh, with that being said, like I say, uh, I do hope everything is going well for you, wherever you are. We are going to do a pretty deep cut into the news of the dam. I'm going to give you lots of commentary on some of these articles because I've got several articles again from our chapter president in Oregon, Trey. So thanks, Trey, for those. I've got an article from Jeff in Wisconsin. So thanks, Jeff. Jeff from Badgerland Legends on Instagram, folks. Check him out if you want to see some really interesting facts about Wisconsin. Jeff sent me a good one. And then I've got a few more of my own. I've just settled on about nine articles of the News of the Damned when we do the News of the Damned only shows, because that tends to work out about 90 minutes to two hours, which is where I try and release shows for you, kind of sweet spot it. So folks, uh, with all of that being said, it is now time for us to get into the News of the Damned. Now, for those of you who don't know, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was interested in all of the things that we enjoy so much. So, light, strange lights in the sky, cryptids, sea monsters, disappearing people, strange things falling from the skies, out-of-place artifacts, and on and on and on. Well, Charles Fort was so interested in these things, he took the time to gather 40, 50, 60,000 handwritten index card notes from periodicals all over the world, from newspapers and magazines, in English and all other languages around the world. And then he correlated those into four books where he laid out these stories and gave a bit of his commentary and really asked us, the reader, to do what I try to do with this show, which is let the reader, or in this case you, the listeners, make up your own mind. Well, anyway, Charles Fort referred to anything that was ignored or excluded by science as damned data. Therefore, this segment of the Paranormal Sun is always known as the News, the news of the, the Damned. Okay, so the first article we've got here is the one that Jeff sent me. 
And this one is from Mysterious Universe. And again, folks, there's a link in the show notes to each one of these. If you want to check out the article, you just go in the show notes of the episode and there'll be a link you can click and go and check it out. It's especially helpful with some of these that have got video. This one's from Mysterious Universe, as I say, and it was written by Paul Seaburn, December 17th, and it says, Nine-hour exorcism on possessed woman performed in Italy by multiple exorcists. And I joked with Jeff when he sent it through to me, I wonder if they stopped partway through to have a pasta break, because nine-hour exorcism is pretty full-on. Says the original version of the movie The Exorcist ran for 122 minutes, which means the actual exorcism scenes, as scary as we remember them to be, lasted mere minutes. If the Guinness people give world records for exorcisms, the world record for the longest exorcism on one person may have been set recently in in Vincenza, Italy, at the Church of St. Mary of Mount Barico, when four priests conducted a nine-hour exorcism on a 28-year-old woman after she attacked a priest, hearing her confession. Okay, so it says, Always based on the elements collected through some testimonies, the young woman jumped on the religious... On... I don't know why it's written that way. It just says, The young woman jumped on the religious and began to swear. Some of those present... Okay, so jumped on the religious practitioners. Okay. Some of those present would have heard it expressed in several languages, including Latin. Il Giornave di Vincenza, uh, so that's the Italian paper, reports that the unnamed woman was taken to the church by her mother, who believed her recent violent behavior was due to a demonic influence. Her mother had overruled her father, who thought his daughter had a mental disorder. According to the report, the confessor, a member of the Order of the Servants of Mary, called for help from Father Giuseppe Bernardi, the exorcist of Monte Barico. Is it a bad sign when your local church needs a full-time exorcist? Uh, so, yeah, Father Bernardi was joined by Father Carlo Rosato and two other religious brothers, who immediately cleared the building of all other people and locked the door. Someone decided to contact the switchboards of the police headquarters, the local police, and the SUEM, and two patrols and an ambulance showed up in Monte Barico. The screams coming from inside the cathedral prompted a call to the police, who waited outside. But the five religious men decided they needed help. They needed help of the exorcism kind and reportedly contacted exorcists from other Italian dioceses for advice and prayers. One joined in the exorcism by video conference, a Zoom exorcism. Even with that kind of manpower, the woman wouldn't stop her strange and violent behavior. On the contrary, she ran from one side of the penitentiary. Uh, sorry, no, penitentiary, yeah, yeah, to the other and jumped on the furniture, continued to shout blasphemous phrases in Italian and other languages at the top of her lungs. She would also have tried to attack the religions, the religious who were trying to reassure her and would have also taken it out on her mother, who would have slapped her in the face. It took four people to immobilize her. So they're using Google Translation. That's why these, some of this isn't the best. Sorry for that. The exorcism reportedly lasted from 11 a.m. to 8.30 p.m., with the four main friars uh, constantly reciting the rites of exorcism. Finally, at 8.30 p.m., the exhausted woman fell asleep. According to the report, the exorcists decided that was a sign they had driven out the demon, so they helped the mother put her in her car and the family returned home. 
That wouldn't make such an exorcism, wouldn't make much of an exorcism movie. In fact, it's probably not a world record either, I was going to say. In a famous and well-documented case, a woman named Emma Schmidt, formerly known by the pseudonym Anna Eklund, was said to have suffered from demonic possession for decades and was subjected to an exorcism that lasted from August 18th to December 23rd, 1928. So, boy, that, what, four or five months? In a convent in Earling, Iowa. During the months of exorcism, Schmidt Eklund was said to have levitated, howled, hung from a doorframe, spoke in multiple languages unknown to her, and was so violent that some of the nuns requested transfers. The behavior ended on December 23rd, although she reportedly suffered minor, minor incidents until her death in 1941. Deemed movie-worthy, the story was made into the film The Exorcism of Anna Eklund in 2016. Yeah, I'd say it's movie-worthy. Nine and a half hours for an exorcism is still pretty impressive, even if it ended with the possessed falling asleep. Let's hope she gets checked out by medical personnel before she ends up hanging from the doorframe, or worse. Okay, so what are my thoughts on that? I've got no doubt that, especially in the Middle Ages or Renaissance Europe or even a couple hundred years ago, there would have been many people who went through exorcism treatment who had mental illness. Do I think there's more to it than just everyone who gets exercise has mental illness? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. If you don't believe me, go back and listen to... You can find them on YouTube. There was a gentleman who was one of the early guests on Art Bell when Art Bell was doing Coast to Coast. His name's Malachi Martin. Now, he's long since passed away. But he was, I can't remember his exact title, but he was very high up in the Vatican and specifically for exorcisms. And some of the stories that he told about exorcisms would make your skin crawl. Also, a dear guest that we've had on before, and I want to get on again, I've just got to clear my plate. But the lovely Lionel Fanthorpe, who was an Anglican minister for many years, Lionel attended many exorcisms as well. And I believe that there's some definitely something to it. Now, now, what is it? Is it the devil? Is it demons? Is it just negative entities, for lack of a better term? I don't know. But I definitely do not think that it's all down to people with mental illnesses. Um, yeah, basically, if somebody starts speaking multiple tongues and spitting and swearing at me and everything else, I'm heading the other way, folks. All right. No point in tempting fate. That's my uh, my thoughts on it anyway. I uh, I don't think I'll be jumping in there to uh, help perform any exorcisms. Right. So the next one we've got here is from Trey. So thanks, Trey. And this is an older uh, article. I've got a few of Trey's to work through. And this is from a site called TexasUFOSightings.com. And then it says, uh, so this was a UFO, Triangle UFO sighted over Longview. Uh, John in Perth, I know you were just mentioning if I was going to end up covering the 1989-1990 uh, Belgian UFO wave, which is where that's pretty much the first time that it was common knowledge about these triangular UFOs being sighted. Uh, so here, here's one even now, you know, 2021. So more than 30 years later and uh here here we go here we go we're talking about uh triangular ufos still 
So it says when? October 20th, 2021 at 8 p.m. Where? Longview, uh, Longview, Texas. What? Triangle craft with three lights on edges and one red light in the center. Flew silently. According to a recent MUFON report, case 119207. So if you're scoring at home, folks, it's 119207. That's the case number. A classic triangle UFO was seen over Longview, Texas. Triangle-shaped craft with three white lights forming the triangle and one red light directly in the center. On October 20th, 2021, between 6.54 p.m. and 8.39 p.m., I was sitting on my back porch talking to my mother on the telephone. I saw several satellites and shooting stars. Shortly after seeing the shooting stars, I saw what appeared to be a triangular craft with three white lights that formed a triangle and a single red light in the center. The craft was nearly directly overhead of me, flying west to east at slow speed. There was no sound, and it appeared to be about the size of a golf ball if held at arm's length. Shortly afterwards, it disappeared over the tree line. There was another singular light that appeared in the northern direction of this sighting. This light, however, was stationary, and the only reason I noticed it was the intense increase in brightness, and then all of a sudden, the light just blinked off. Now, for those who aren't sure where Longview is, they've got a map here, which is... I appreciate. Uh, so it's pretty much due east of Fort Worth, the Dallas-Fort Worth metro, and uh, it's between Shreveport and Dallas-Fort Worth. Triangle UFOs are some of the most commonly reported UFOs. Ain't that a fact? In Texas as well, it says. And this particular case seems to fit the description of so many other reports. Are all these cases related? If not, is it possible that some are man-made and others are alien? Let me know your thoughts and theories. So... A pretty pretty short article there. There is one comment underneath, and this was posted on the 20th of November. It says, I saw the exact same thing over the ship channel bridge on November 15th at 4.12 a.m. I was heading to work and had formed the habit of looking at the night sky for you-know-whats, and there it was. It was off to the side of the bridge about 300 feet, and it was just hovering. It was triangular in shape with white lights at the points and a red light. I wish I could have pulled over to take a picture, but there were more cars on the freeway than usual after the holiday weekend. So, Trey did say, why does it seem like there's only one person that saw this? But is often the case, uh, Trey and anyone else listening. I mean, there I'm sure there were other people. I, I shouldn't say that. I'm confident fairly confident that there would have been other people that would have seen it but not everybody's going to report it to move on and not everybody's going to come out and talk about it again i i mean those of you that live in small towns or have grown up in small towns it was funny because um there's a, an author who i'm going to be interviewing soon for the program and i was reading his bio and he was talking about in his bio that as a child he was he was encouraged not to talk about some of the things he was seeing because his family didn't want to be ridiculed. Again, small town. And it'll be the same thing here. I mean, Longview, looking at this map, is not very big. It's uh, it, it's it's quite a bit, you know, it's not a big city, definitely. Um, so, yeah, it is interesting. And again, it, it just goes to show, once again, they're seen all over the world on a daily basis. The vast majority are explainable. I know that. I agree with that. And I've said it time and time again on the program. But to me, it's pretty easy that you've got somewhere between 3 and 5% of them are in the other basket. So what I mean is 
They're not satellites. They're not weather balloons. They're not the planet Venus. They're not swamp gas. They're not Chinese lanterns. Could they be experimental aircraft? Of course. Could they be something else? Of course. I'm not saying they're all little green men or little gray men from Zeta Reticuli. All I'm saying is that that 3 to 5% are unexplained per what we know, meaning in the public sector. Now, I'm sure if the if the Black Projects went through all of their stuff, then again, you would bring that percentage right down. But they're not going to tell us now, are they? We all know that. At least uh, we've been waiting for, what, at least 50, 60 years. I don't see them rushing out to tell us what they've got in the... Uh, in the black uh, projects anytime soon. Probably not before I'm long gone anyway. So anyway, interesting, always interesting to see these triangular UFO reports. They're definitely one of the most classics, probably right up there with saucer-shaped, uh, boomerang-shaped, and cigar or cylindrical shape. So thanks, Trey, for that one. And the next couple here that Trey sent me, he sent them under the headline, When Nature Strikes Back, which is <laughs> very true. So the first one here, folks, is from the BBC News. This is an interesting little one. It says Shakira. Yes, who you're thinking of, Shakira, the singer. Shakira, singer attacked by a pair of wild boars. And this was from September the 30th. It says pop superstar Shakira says she was the victim of a random attack by a pair of wild boars while walking in a park in Barcelona with her eight-year-old son. The Colombian singer said the animals attacked her before seizing her bag and retreating with it into the woods. So they're pickpocket boars. She shared her bizarre tale in a series of Instagram stories on Wednesday. Holding the now recorded, uh, recovered but torn bag towards the camera, she said, Look at how two wild boar, boars which attacked me in the park have left my bag. They were taking my bag to the woods with my mobile phone in it, the singer continued. They've destroyed everything. Obviously, they're going to be calling some... Uh, <laughs> They're going to be calling some 0900 numbers with her phone. She then turned to her son, whose father is the Barcelona footballer Gerard Piquet, and said, Milan, tell the truth. Say how your mummy stood up to the wild boar. Shakira is the latest victim of the increasingly aggressive hogs, which have invaded the Catalan capital in recent years. In 2016, Spanish police received 1,187 phone calls about wild hogs attacking dogs, plundering cat feeders, holding up traffic, and running into cars in the city. In 2013, one police officer attempted to take charge of the problem himself and shot at a boar with his service revolver, but missed and hit his partner instead. <laughs> Boars, which can carry a wide variety of diseases, are listed among the world's most invasive species and can survive in almost any environment. But increasingly, the animals are drawn to cities, where they live off rubbish discarded by humans. Their numbers have exploded across Europe, with the latest estimates now surpassing around 10 million across the continent. As they have become more aggressive and more of a nuisance, many cities have employed a variety of strategies to cull their numbers. In Berlin, urban hunters have killed thousands of the animals, but the problem persists. It makes some nice bratwurst. Last year, police officers in Rome sparked outrage after they shot a family of wild boar that had wandered into a children's playground with tranquilizer darts and gave them lethal injections. So I'm assuming they gave the boars lethal injections, not the children. Uh, but maybe that's what the outrage is about. I kid, I kid, folks, but the reality is 
see, I didn't know about this. I knew that in parts of the U.S., especially in the South, in Florida and Texas and several other areas, they've got these feral hogs are quite a problem. But I had no idea this was a big issue in Europe. So, yeah, hey, thanks for sending that through, Trey. And I didn't think of it being in cities, but I mean, anyone who's been on a farm knows that pigs don't mess around. And those are domesticated pigs, but they'll barge you if if you piss them off. So I can imagine how those wild boars are. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. She's lucky it was only a purse. Right. So the next one was also under that same uh, when nature strikes back. Now, Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, you'll want to listen to this one and anyone else from North Carolina for that matter. So this is from the Charlotte Observer. And it says, beware of 700 pound elk on the Blue Ridge Parkway. They charge at cars, park warns. So 700 pounds, folks, that's about 330, 340 kilos. For those of you that uh, don't know pounds, so what I'm saying, that's a big animal, right? And this is from November the 27th. An animal that was extinct in the North Carolina mountains for more than 200 years has reemerged as a potential threat to drivers on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Big, angry elk. Angry elk seen along the parkway and in Great Smoky Mountains National Park can weigh between 500 and 700 pounds and have been known to charge in order to defend themselves, the National Park Service wrote in an October 4th Facebook post. If you see an elk on the parkway, please keep your distance in order to maintain their safety and your own. Examples of car versus elk incidents on the parkway were not reported, but crashes have happened elsewhere in North Carolina, including a July 2018 wreck on Interstate 26 in Henderson County. That's 40 miles from the Great Smoky Mountains. Elk grow bigger than black bears, up to 10 feet long, so that's more than 3 feet long or 3 meters long and 5 feet tall, so that's a meter meter and a half or so tall at the shoulders, and the antlers on males can grow 5 feet wide, the National Park Service says. Both males and females are known to charge if they perceive a threat. Yep, definitely. Experts say the Park Service included a photo with its Facebook post showing a bull elk as tall as a car crossing Heinant Spur Road near the parkway's 458 mile post. Elk were decimated in the state by overhunting and loss of habitat, according to the National Park Service. It's believed the last elk in North Carolina was killed in the late 1700s, officials say. 52 elk were reintroduced to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park in 2001 and 2002 and the growing population soon strayed beyond the park's boundaries. They can now be seen in the southernmost part portions of the Blue Ridge Parkway and in some neighboring communities, officials said recently. Among the western North Carolina towns that have some elk invasion is Cherokee, just outside the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Earlier this year, Cherokee Rapids Tube Rentals posted a one-minute video showing a herd of 20 elk taking over one of Cherokee's busiest roads in the middle of the day. They are seen regularly throughout Cherokee and come and go as they please, the company told the Charlotte Observer. Okay, so for those of you out there who may not know a lot about elk, a lot of people might think, oh, it's it's deer. No, elk are like the, the, the big, it's like, you know, when you're a kid on the playground or maybe not you, but for some of us, um, I didn't have an older brother, but, uh, when you're on the playground, you know, and uh, another kid shoves you and you go and get your dad or you and go go and get your big brother, 
and they're twice your size. Well, that's what an elk is compared to a deer, folks. It's not the same animal, and they are much more aggressive, especially during breeding season um, when they rub the felt off their horns in the spring. Uh, it, they call it, uh, what was it? I can't remember. It's been, it's been so long since, uh, since we, uh, what, since I grew up around them in, in, uh, the Pacific Northwest trying to remember the, the name of the season, but it's basically when they clash antlers in the forest and you'll hear them smashing into each other with their antlers because they're fighting over basically the breeding stock. So yeah, they can get pretty darn aggressive. So, huh. I guess basically the reality is, as with any wild animal, keep your distance. And the amount of people who are killed or severely damaged running into deer and elk and that on the highways in the U.S. is is pretty frightening. Uh, when I was young, my stepbrother and his wife hit a deer on a motor motorcycle and it nearly killed both of them. They were in intensive care and had to have steel plates put in them and everything else. So, I mean, it is no laughing matter and it does kill many, many people every year just like in australia sadly people hitting kangaroos on the highway the same the same thing i mean you can't hit something that hard or that big uh hard and fast and not have it affect you so the next one here is also from trey and i've also seen this pop up uh, a bit in my news feed as of late and this one says this is from yahoo news but it comes from the hill and it says, scientists say Xenobots, world's first living robots, can reproduce. Just what we need in 2021, my friends. Scientists who created Xenobots, the world's first living robots, say the life forms are the first ever self-replicating live robots. Yay! The tiny organisms were originally unveiled in 2020. The robots were assembled from heart and skin cells belonging to the African clawed frog. They can move independently for about a week before running out of energy or self-healing and break down naturally. The scientists from the University of Vermont Tufts University and Harvard University's Weiss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering published research on Monday saying they discovered a new type of biological reproduction different from any other known plant or animal species, according to a press release published by the Weiss Institute. People have thought for quite a long time that we've worked out all the ways that life can reproduce or replicate, but this is something that's never been observed before, says Douglas Blackiston, PhD, a senior scientist at Tufts University and the Weiss Institute, who worked on the study. The scientist says the new research could be beneficial in terms of uses in the medical field. If we knew how to tell collections of cells to do what we wanted them to do, ultimately, that, ultimately that's regenerative... Uh, regenerative Medicine, that's the solution to traumatic injury, birth defects, cancer, and aging. Michael Levin, PhD, a co-leader of the research, added, All of these different problems are here because we don't know how to predict and or control what groups of cells are going to build. Xenobots are a new platform for teaching us. Yeah, I would say tread carefully. Um, there are many people much smarter than myself that are extremely concerned about things like the singularity and AI running rampant, and people feeling that if something is created that is a hundred or a thousand times more intelligent than man, that they will look at us and look at what we have done to ourselves, done to our planet, and done to the other creatures here, and just basically say, yeah, you guys are a mistake. And 
I myself look, it, it's it's a hell of a coin flip, right? Because almost everyone says the same thing. It's just which side do they think the coin will land on? Almost everyone says that it would either be basically extinction for us, or it would usher in the most golden age for humanity that you could imagine. If the AI played ball, that basically we would be able to do things that we never dreamt of because we would have this computing power and this intelligence so much greater than us, it would almost be godlike. But on the other hand, if this AI looked at us and perceived a threat or just a waste of space, for lack of a better term, extinction. So, yeah. And there is a theory about intelligent life in the universe, and it's called the bottleneck theory or the gateway theory. And the theory is that species, intelligent species evolve to a certain point, And then there's a threshold. And it's that none or very few of the species ever survive past that threshold. Some believe it's the invention of nuclear and thermonuclear weapons. Some believe that it's AI. And basically once you as a species, wherever you are in the universe, once you create AI, that that AI then basically says you're a perceived threat or you're a waste and you're gone. So, yeah, I don't know. Me personally, it doesn't matter what I think, um, but I think that we are rushing very much into something as a species that we don't understand and we don't know how to control. That's my personal opinion. Uh, I, I don't see any way that we can control something that is a hundred or a thousand times more intelligent than us. And the sad bit is, folks, for all of us, we don't have a say in this because governments around the world and scientists around the world are going to do it no matter what we say, okay? Um, it Again, it all comes down to that whole thing. If we don't get it, the other guy will. So during the Cold War, if we don't get it, the communists will get it. And right now with China and the U.S. and Russia in this basically this three-way uh, Mexican standoff, but especially the U.S. and China, how long before someone decides it's time to get AI and release AI if they don't have it already? So, yeah, it's a bit of a downer, I know, but it tread carefully. If I had the choice to make, it's not worth the risk. That's just my personal opinion. It would only be like as a last ditch effort if if it was basically like we're going to go extinct anyway because of us polluting and pillaging and destroying the planet. And it's either AI or we're going to be extinct anyway in 100 years. Then I'd probably go for AI. But that's honestly, that's about the only way. Now, hopefully in the future, our artificial intelligent overlord doesn't get a hold of this recording and decide that it is time to liquidate the paranormal sun, but fingers crossed that doesn't happen. <laughs> Rightio. So now here's another one here, and this is a very interesting one that I found. Uh, this one is from unexplainedmysteries.com. And again, folks, very slowly, very slowly, very slowly. Let's just put out a little bit at a time, put out a little bit at a time. I'm talking about governments of the world and space agencies and that and conditioning us for there being other life in the universe aside from the life on earth and this one here says 
rover finds organic molecules on the surface of Mars. It's from December the 17th. And I was looking for who wrote it, but they don't have it. NASA's Perseverance rover has discovered organic compounds in rocks and dust on the floor of Jezero Crater. It has definitely been an eventful year for the car-sized rover, which having launched in July 2020, landed on the surface of the Red Planet back in February, beginning a whole new era of exploration on Mars, with the ultimate goal of determining if life may have once existed there. Fast forward 10 months and now scientists this week have revealed that the rover's exploration of Jezero Crater has yielded the discovery of organic compounds in the dust and rock. While these do not necessarily mean that there is or was life on Mars, and such compounds have been found on the Red Planet before, the discovery is significant because it shows that the rocks on Mars are capable of preserving them, and potentially evidence of life as well. The discovery was made using a new instrument aboard the rover, the Scanning Habitable Environments with Raman and Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals. And yes, folks, that acronym spells Sherlock, as in <laughs> no crap Sherlock. Curiosity also discovered organics at the landing site within Gale Crater, says NASA planetary scientist Luther Beagle. What Sherlock added to the story is its capability to map the spatial disruption, or sorry, distribution of organics inside rocks and relate those organics to minerals found there. This helps us understand the environment in which the organics formed. More analysis needs to be done in determining the method of production for the identified organics. So, Sherlock. Very fitting, because to me, it is no crap Sherlock, okay? that there is intelligent life beyond this planet. In fact, many would argue there is no intelligent life on this planet. But if you had to say to me, JT, not that mankind will find it, but we have the answer on the other side of this door or in this envelope, is there other intelligent life in this universe? And you had to say, I would be all in. I would bet the house, the, the moon, the stars, everything that there is. We cannot be the only thing of intelligence in this universe. I'm sorry. We just can't be. That's just my personal feeling. And I think that the percentage of people that believe that that's not the case is just getting more and more minute as the years go by. And sooner or later, they're going to get to the point where it's like, okay, we can tell them now. I'm sure they've known for, again, this is just my supposition, but I'm sure they've known for a while that there's something else out there that's um, intelligent, be it alive now, and they know it's alive elsewhere, or that they've found archaeological traces of something from the past that tells them that there's something still out there. Now, maybe it's something so horrific, like something so advanced, that they're really panicky and they don't want us to know. Who knows? But again, my personal opinion, I have no doubt in my mind that elsewhere in this universe or multiverse or whatever you want to call it, there is other intelligent life of the non-humanoid species and we're going to get more into that in just a little bit in another article but i got one before that here and this one is from crosscut.com and it says mossbacks northwest before the kraken what lurked in the salish sea so when i saw this i thought very much of you trey uh, because um, obviously being in the pacific northwest 
And there's a video here, but the, the guy in the video is wearing a Seattle Kraken shirt. So for those of you that don't know, the Kraken is the Seattle ice hockey team that was just established in Seattle. And Trey and I have talked a bit about it. So it says, area waters have a history of monster sightings, many of them way stranger than Bigfoot. And it says, by Newt Berger and Stephen Haig. Right, so Seattle has a new hockey team named after the Kraken, a legendary Old Norse sea monster. Do we in the Northwest have a history of sea monsters? You betcha, and most definitely you betcha. We all know about Bigfoot lurking in our forests, in the pages of the tabloids, but strange creatures have also been sighted in our Salish Sea waters. Move over, Sasquatch. Meet, <laughs> meet Cabdorosaurus. The idea of sea serpents in the Salish Sea and nearby waters is old. Indigenous artwork has featured a serpent-like creature in petroglyphs, dances, songs, masks, and carvings. It was a known critter long before Europeans came along with their own stories of seeing weird things in the sea. In 1880, a news item in the Vancouver, Washington, Independent, reported that a marvelous sea serpent had been seen again off Cape Flattery. He, di he disported in the water more than 15 minutes to invite inspection of its prodigious size and rare ugliness, throwing his long tapering body 90 feet out of the water and disclosing wings that put our mainsail in the shade reported one B. Stowe when he got to port, the serpent's snorting was said to be epic. Now, see, an article like that, that would have been right in Charles Fort's wheelhouse. That would have been something that he would have included in his books. That same year, a wonderful sea monster was said to have been caught near Victoria by local native people. It was brought to town and described as a genuine sea serpent, six feet in length, with the orthodox mane, a head shaped like a panther, it was said to have been preserved in spirits and sent to Ottawa for identification. As no locals knew what it was, that wasn't the last time some odd carcass found on a northwest beach sparked the question, what the heck is it? Strange sightings weren't confined just to saltwater. Indigenous peoples told stories of creatures in lakes, famously a serpent-like critter in British Columbia's Lake Okanagan named Ogopogo. And that's... Maybe not everyone's heard of it, but back in, especially in the 70s and 80s, there was a bit of a uh, water water creature craze where you had, obviously, the Loch Ness Monster is the most famous. But there's one, another famous one in Scotland named Morag. There's obviously the one in Lake Ogopogo, Champ in Lake Champlain, and on and on and on all over the world. Since the late 19th century, hundreds of sightings of large serpent-like creatures have been reported off the coast of Washington and British Columbia, mostly in the Salish Sea, from the Strait of Juan de Fuca to Willapa Bay, from the San Juan Islands to Howe Sound. There were sightings in Puget Sound as well. Sorry, folks, I lost my place here. There were sightings in Puget Sound too, in Elliott Bay, at Deception Pass, and near Everett and some as far north as Alaska. And I've had listeners in Everett, so if you're listening, you've definitely had sightings near you. Some accounts were sometimes ascribed to those who were too fond of their rum ration. The creatures weren't always flapping massive wings, but were often described as having a long body or neck and sometimes serpentine movement. People had different impressions of its head, though, saying it looked like a dog, a seal, a snake, a horse, a giraffe, a sheep, a camel, a cat, a cow. I suppose it's a kind of Rorschach test for the observers. As with UFOs, sea serpent sightings seemed to come in bunches. With more boat traffic, more reports came in. 
The biggest bunch began in the 1930s in the waters off Vancouver Island. In October of 1933, the Victoria Daily Times reported on an admittedly slow news day that witnesses deemed credible had made sightings of a strange sea creature. That story turned on the spigot of serpent sightings. The sightings were by two different couples roughly a year apart, both in the vicinity of Cad Cadborough Bay near Victoria. One witness, a Major Langley, a local barrister, was on his yacht with his wife when they heard a snort and a hiss and saw a large creature with a dome-like back with serrations. Langley had been whaling and said it was unlike any whale he had ever seen. Now, that's key to me because it's a person who's actually had been whaling, and that's often one of the things that people say, oh, it's whales, uh, it's dolphins, on and on and on. And this is a guy who would know better. It was near the same location, and see, even then he said no whale he'd ever seen, so he's not saying it couldn't be a whale, he's just saying it's not like any he'd ever seen. It was near the same location where the previous summer another couple, named Kemp, had sighted something bizarre. Mr. Kemp worked at the provincial archives and reported the sighting of a reptilian creature swimming toward shore, where it raised its head out of water and rested it on a rock. It had a serrated tail, and Kemp said, moved a bit like a crocodile. It had a mane that resembled a bed of kelp. He calculated that it was more than 60 feet long. Like Loch Ness's Nessie in Scotland, it needed a name. Suggestions ranged from Amy to the multi, multi, <laughs> multi symbolic Hyashukaluk, which means large water snake in Chinook. But they settled on Cad Borosaurus, or just Caddy for short. Okay, I've heard Caddy. The sea serpent of old had hit the modern media. Articles appeared and scores of new sightings were recorded. Some believe there was an entire caddy family out there frolicking from Puget Sound to Campbell River. Speculation was that it could just be a survivor of the prehistoric era, perhaps a Jurassic plesiosaur. Still, despite hundreds of sightings, high-resolution photos and film have been elusive. Strange remains on the beach have turned out to be the decayed remnants of other sea species, like basking sharks or oarfish. Like Bigfoot, no one has been able to nail down just who or what Caddy is. Maybe a better name for Caddy is Cagey. The Salish Sea could be crowded with cryptids, the name for unknown species. Researchers say Caddy sightings are not necessarily describing a single creature, but possibly two or three different critters. Nor do sightings guarantee anything truly new or unknown is really out there snorting, hissing, and splashing about except maybe the human imagination. Look, very fair article, very true. It's a fact. I mean, <laughs> we don't know for sure if there is anything out there or if it's just pareidolia and other things of people seeing things that aren't there, seeing it as something else. So one of the old ones is that you see these Loch Ness photos and one person will say, I see a reptilian serpent-like form and... Another person will say they see a log. As for me, I think the ocean is a massive unknown entity. And I think that as time goes by, we're going to find a lot of things out there that we don't know about or things that we already said were extinct, like the coelacamp. I think that eventually we're going to start finding a lot of these things. I think, again, it's it's an often quoted number but it's something like only 3% of the oceans are, are mapped, like, i.e., all the depths in that. We know how big they are on the surface, but it's only like 3% of them are explored and mapped. 
in that we know more about the surface of the moon and Mars than we do about the bottoms of our oceans, which is all very true. So again, who knows what's down there? And unlike Mars or the moon, we know there's life in the oceans, although we are doing our best to destroy it all. Uh, for now, there's still life in the oceans. Now, this next one takes us back to the realm of outer space and other planets, other solar systems, etc. Now, this one, I found that articles from this site can tend to run a bit long. So we're going to start going through it. But if it's too much, I'll just call time and then I'll tell you, as I say, there's a link in the show notes. You can finish it if you want. But I found some of these articles. It's not a news article. It's more like a half an hour read. OK, so this is from Vice. And unfortunately for us here um, in New Zealand, just as I really started watching Vice and started, they've taken it off the air. Our hard cable network here is a real pain because every time I get used to a channel, I start getting interested in what they've got. Oh, yeah, that channel's not around anymore. So this is from Vice and it's uh, Motherboard Tech by Vice. And this one says, now again, we'll see what comes out of this because I've seen some of these other misleading headlines with a, with a with a a headline like this it says Stanford professor Gary Nolan is analyzing anomalous materials from UFO crashes now <laughs> again this is like where is he getting it from do we know it's from UFO crashes are they purported etc but i mean you read an article name like that right you read a headline like that it's like oh whoa whoa since when have we admitted we've got crashed UFO material now I've I've personally I've got no doubt that we do but I'm just saying it's like since when has this become like mainstream to admit that we've got it So it says a Q&A with one of the foremost scientists studying UAPs and what he hopes to learn by systematically studying bizarre and difficult to explain incidents And this is by Toby Campion Dr Gary Nolan is a professor of pathology at Stanford University his research ranges from cancer to systems Im immunology. Dr. Nolan has also spent the last 10 years working with a number of individual of individual analyzing materials from alleged unidentified aerial phenomena. His robust resume, 300 research articles, 40 US patents, founding of 8 biotech companies. Founding of 8 biotech companies. Now that's impressive to me. Yeah, the patents, don't get me wrong, articles, blah, blah, blah. But he's founded eight biotech companies. It's not many people that would found more than one or two companies in their lifetime. You know, big people. So it says, and honored as one of Stanford's top 25 inventors makes him easily one of the most accomplished scientists publicly studying UAPs. Motherboard sat down with Gary to discuss his work. It has been edited for length and clarity. Okay, so hopefully that means it won't be too crazy. Motherboard, how long have you had an interest in UAPs? Dr. Nolan, I've always been an avid reader of science fiction, so it was natural at some point that when YouTube videos about UFOs began to make the rounds, I might watch a few. I noticed that this guy at the time, Stephen Greer, had claimed that a little skeleton might be an alien. I remember thinking, oh, I can prove or disprove that, and so I reached out to him. I eventually showed that it wasn't an alien, it was human. We explain a fair amount about why it looked the way it did. It had a number of mutations in skeletal genes that could potentially explain the biology. The UFO community didn't like me saying that, but you know the truth is in the science. 
so I had no problem just stating the facts. We published a paper, and it ended up going worldwide. It was on the front page of just about every major newspaper. What's more appealing or clickbait than Stanford Professor Sequences Alien Baby? Now, that was the Atacama skeleton, by the way, for those of you that were curious. That ended up bringing me to the attention of some people associated with the CIA and some aeronautics corporations. At the time, they had been investigating a number of cases of pilots who'd gotten close to supposed UAPs and the fields generated by them, as was claimed by the people who showed up at my office unannounced one day. Folks, I'm I'm having my mind blown as we're reading this article because it's just like he's stating it very matter-of-factly, and this is the first I'm hearing of this. There was enough drama around the Atacama skeleton that I had basically decided to forswear all continued involvement in this area. Then these guys showed up and said, We need you to help us with this because we want to do blood analyses, and everybody says that you've got the best blood analysis instrumentation on the planet. Then they started showing the MRIs of some of these pilots and ground personnel and intelligence agents who had been who had been damaged. The MRIs were clear. You didn't even have to be an MD to see that there was a problem. Some of their brains were horribly, horribly damaged. And so, that's what kind of got me involved. So there's a question from Vice. Does the Department of Pathology at Stanford have a track record of pulling practical jokes on you? I thought it was a practical joke at the beginning. But no, nobody was pulling a practical joke. And just as an aside, the school is completely supportive and always has been of the work that I've been doing. When the Atacama thing hit the fan, they stepped in and helped me deal with the public relations issues around it. Again from Vice, are you able to mention which folks from which governmental departments other, other than aeronautics approached you? And he replies, no, I'm not. And again from Vice, can you describe the more anomalous effects of the brains, or sorry, on the brains you observe with the MRIs? If you've ever looked at an MRI of somebody with multiple sclerosis, there's something called white matter disease. It's scarring. It's a big white blob or multiple white blobs scattered throughout the MRI. It's essentially dead tissue where the immune system has attacked the brain. That's probably the closest thing you could come to if you wanted to look at a snapshot from one of these individuals. You can pretty quickly see that there's something wrong. This is this is just mind-blowing to me. Again, the question from Vice. How many patients did you take a look at in that first phase? It was around 100 patients. They were almost all defense or governmental personnel or people working in the aerospace industry. People doing government-level work. Here's how it works. Let's say that a Department of Defense personnel gets damaged or hurt. Odd cases go up the chain of command, at least within the medical branch. If nobody knows what to do with it, it goes over to what's called the weird desk, where things get thrown in a bucket. Then somebody eventually says, Oh, there's enough interesting things in this bucket worth following up on that all look reasonably similar. Science works by comparing things that are similar and dissimilar to other things. Enough people were having very similar kinds of bad things happen to them that it came to the attention of a guy by the name of Dr. Kit Green. He was in charge of studying some of these individuals. You have a smorgasbord of patients, some of whom had heard weird noises buzzing in their heads, got sick, etc. A reasonable subset of them had claimed to have seen UAPs, and some claimed to be close to things that got them sick. Let me show you the MRIs of the brains of some of those people. And then they've got these photos here. 
uh, hypermorphism of the head and of uh, Cowdate, uh, Petumen, uh, and then photo by Gary Nolan. And it's got a photo of this uh, of, of the brain, like well, not a photo, MRI. We started to notice that there was similarities in what we thought was the damage across multiple individuals. As we looked more closely, though, we realized, well, that can't be damaged because that's right in the middle of the basal ganglia, a group of nuclei responsible for motor control and other core brain functions. If those structures were severely damaged, those people would be dead. That was when we realized that these people were not damaged, but had an over-connection of neurons between the head of the, of the caudate and the pitumen. The caudate nucleus plays a critical role in various higher neurological functions. The pitumen influences motor planning, learning, and execution. If you looked at 100 average people, you wouldn't see this kind of density. But these individuals had it. An open question is, did coming in contact with whatever it was cause it or not? For a couple of these individuals, we had MRIs from prior years. They had it before they had these incidents. It was pretty obvious. Then that this was something that people were born with. It's a goal-sub-goal setting planning device. It's called the brain within the brain. It's an extraordinary thing. This area of the brain is involved partly in what we call intuition. For instance, Japanese chess players were measured as they made what would be construed as brilliant decision as, as a brilliant decision that is not obvious for anyone to have made that kind of leap of intuition. This area of the brain lights up. We had found people who had this in spades. These are so-called high-functioning people. They're pilots who are making split-second decisions, intelligence officers in the field, etc. Everybody has this connectivity region in general, but let's say for the average person that the density level is one times. Most of the people in the study had five times to ten times and up to fifteen times the normal density in this region. In this case, we are speculating that the density implies some sort of, neuro of neuronal function. Did the people who claimed that they'd had an encounter, especially the pilots, describe any perceivable decrease in neurological capacity? Of the 100 or so patients that we looked at, about a quarter of them died from their injuries. That's crazy. And this isn't like, wow, my mind's just blown. So, so 100 patients, right, uh, that have supposedly interacted with UAPs in some way. About a quarter of them died from their injuries. And this isn't being covered, like, by anyone. Okay, wow. If I was standing, I'd need to sit down. The majority of these patients had symptomology that's basically identical to what is now called Havana Syndrome. And you've heard me cover this on the show. And that sees people having headaches and hearing voices and everything else. And the U.S. State Department has blamed this on foreign entities. We think amongst this bucket list of cases, we had the first Havana Syndrome patients. Once this turned into a national security problem with the Havana Syndrome, I was locked out of all of the access to the files because it's now a serious potential international incident if they figure out who's been doing it. Wow, that's nuts. They still left individuals who had seen UAPs. They didn't have Havana Syndrome. They had a smorgasbord of other symptoms. How does the impact of electromagnetic frequencies factor into your hypothesis about what exactly transpired here? With one of the patients, it happened on the Skinwalker Ranch. Given how deep into the brain the damage went, we can actually estimate the amount of energy required in the electromagnetic wave someone aimed at them. 
We don't think that has anything to do with UAPs. We think that that's some sort of state se- state actor, and again related to Havana Syndrome somehow. <clears throat> so what they're saying is that basically someone on Skinwalker Ranch, and if you've watched the TV series, I'll bet you know who it is, had a foreign actor basically aiming an electronic, electromagnetic emission at him. Why would... It's not at a border, right? It's not a big city. It's not somewhere like Washington, D.C. It's literally out in the middle of nowhere. So one, how would this foreign entity get out there, meaning a foreigner? Number two, how would they stay hidden in and around this ranch? And number three, why? What the hell do they have to gain? You're not attacking like a CIA or a Pentagon general. It's it's just someone at a ranch. Okay, that's pretty nuts. Wow, this is this article is is definitely something else. Other than MRIs, what technologies were you using to analyze the patients? We did a deep psychological evaluation of all of these people just to make sure that they were stable and were not dealing with obviously delusional individuals. My role in the initial project was analysis of blood using a device called a CYTOF which was something that I had been involved in the development of. The problem was that we couldn't really conclude very much because many of the cases happened years before I ended up getting the blood. With an acute injury to be seen and some telltale signature, we need to collect the we we need to collect them within 4 to 5 days or a couple of weeks, but blood from an individual a couple of years out will not be useful. What I told the people in the government is, I need access to their blood while the case is still acute. Is there anything man-made that might have, have that might have this impact on the brain? The only thing I can imagine is that you're standing next to an electric transformer that's emitting so much energy that you're basically getting burned inside your body. Are you simply attempting to document what you see, or are you looking for causes as well? Yes, it's kind of the natural way that science is done. First you catalog, then you organize, and then you say, well, this is similar to that, and this other thing is similar to that, but why is this other thing different? And then if you have enough data, you start to look for causes. I do that every day with our cancer work. We always try to come up with hypotheses on why something is. Hypotheses are innumerable. They are proof of nothing. So I am careful not to come to a premature conclusion because you only need one disproof to undermine a hypothesis. That's what I'm trying to stay away from. I have my private thoughts about what I think is going on, and some of them I'm very, very sure about. I'm open to being wrong, except most of the time I know I'm probably right. You've also analyzed inanimate materials like alleged UAP fragments. You've probably heard of Jacques Vallée, Kit Green, Eric Davis, and Colm Kelleher. All roads lead to them when it comes to UAP. I basically became friends with that whole group. They call it the Invisible College. Again, that goes back to J. Allen Hynek. When they found out some of the instruments that I had developed using mass spectrometry, they uh yeah spectrometry spe- spectrometry, they asked if I could analyze UAP material and tell them something about it. That led to the development of a roadmap of how to analyze these things, and then they have got a, v- a awesome photo here of the uh, Invisible College, the old one. Uh, Douglas uh, Price Williams, David Saunders, 
Leo Sprinkle, Dick Henry, Jacques Vallée, J. Allen Harnick, Claude Pofer, and Fred Beckman. I've never seen that photo. That's awesome. Some of these objects were nondescript and just lumps of metal. Mostly, there's nothing unusual about them, except, except that everywhere you look in the metal, the composition is different, which is odd. It's what we call inhomogeneous. That's a fancy way of saying incompletely mixed. The common thing about all the materials that I've looked at so far, and there's about a dozen, is that almost none of them are uniform. They're all these hodgepodge mixtures. Each individual case will be composed of a similar set of elements, but they will be inhomogeneous. So, folks, you've heard of homogenized milk. What that means is that the milk is treated in a way, and, and I think that basically it's just vibrated, so that the cream dissolves in the milk. So in other words, the cream doesn't float to the top and separate out. So if you just think about that, if you think about these little molecules of, of the fat, the cream, being mixed throughout the milk instead of just forming a layer of cream on the top, that's inhomogeneous versus homogeneous. And they got a couple photos of these specks of material. One of the materials from the so-called Ubatuba event, a UAP event in Brazil, has extraordinarily altered isotope ratios of magnesium. It was interesting because another piece of the same event was analyzed in the same instrument at the same time. This is an extraordinarily sensitive instrument called a nano SIMS, secondary ion mass spec. It had perfectly correct isotope ratios for what you would expect for magnesium found anywhere on Earth. Meanwhile, the other one was just way off, like 30% off the ratios. The problem is there's no good reason humans have for altering the isotope ratios of a simple metal like magnesium. There's no different properties of the different isotopes that anybody, at least in any of the literature that is public of the hundreds and thousands of papers published, that says this is why you would do that. Now you can do it. It's a little expensive to do, but you'd have no reason for doing it. I mean, let's think about what people use isotopes for today. Most of the time, humans use isotopes to blow things up. <laughs> no surprise. Uranium or plutonium, or to poison someone, or used as a tracer in order to kill cancer. But those are very, very specific cases. We're almost always only using radioactive isotopes. We don't ever change the isotope ratios of stable isotopes, except perhaps as a tracer. What's that mean? Is that if you find a metal where the isotope ratios are changed far beyond what is normally found in nature, then that material has likely been engineered. The material is downstream of a process that caused them to be altered. Someone did it. The questions are who and why. Fully agree. So now let's look at what these materials are claimed to be. In almost every case, these are the leftovers of some sort of process that these objects spit out. So you go look at the cases where molten metal falls from these objects. Why would 30 pounds of molten metal fall from a flying object? Fully agree. What are the circumstances in some of these cases? For example, in some cases, the witnesses state that the observed objects appeared unstable or in some kind of distress. Then it spits out a bunch of stuff. Now the object appears it's stable and moves off. It looks like it fixed itself. One hypothesis would be that the material it offloads is part of the mechanism the object uses, uses for moving around. And when things get out of whack, the object has to offload it. It just drops the stuff to the ground, kind of like the exhaust. That begs the question, again assuming the things are real at all, what are they using it for? 
If there's altered isotope ratios, are they using the altered isotope ratios? Are the altered ratios the result of the propulsion mechanism? Again, pure speculation. When the ratios get that far out of whack, do they have to offload because it's no longer useful in propulsion? Smarter people than me will come up with better reasons, but this is the fun of science. The data is there. The explanation is not. How many objects have you checked out that are not playing by our rules? So, so of the 10 or 12 that I've looked at, two seem to not be playing by our rules. That doesn't mean they're levitating on my desk or anything. It just means that they have altered isotope ratios. Have you ever used a super quantum interference device? We will likely be using squids, so that's super quantum interference device, in a new device that can determine the atomic structure of anything at a sub-angstrom resolution. There's no device in the world that can do that today, especially of an amorphous object. We can do crystals. We can do little bits of biology with what's called cryo-EM, but this device supersedes all of them, so I'm talking with the government about building that. Are the devices and methods that you have available to you in terms of being able to analyze the materials sufficient? In a perfect world, what would you want to see? Depending on how deep you want to go, each analysis costs anywhere from $10,000 to $20,000. That tells you what the atoms are, what the isotope ratios are, crystalline quantity, or sorry, quality, a lot of things that are sort of standard materials analysis. The point of doing this, though, is to figure out what it was used for. To do that, eventually, you do need to get down to the atomic level. Let's say we didn't have the transistors today, and one of these objects dropped a big chunk of geranium, or sorry, germanium, doped with other elements, or you know, these little transistors. We would not have a clue as to the function, and we would say, why would anyone put arrays of germanium with these strange impurities in them? What is this thing? Anybody who's engineering materials these days for doing any kind of advanced electronics and photonics understands that where the atoms are in the structure matters. That's the thing that's often used in biology called the structure-function relationship. Structure defines the function. Sometimes if you can just see the structure, you can understand the function. I can look at a heart and watch a little bit of how it moves and understand its function. I can look at the tubes in your veins and say, that function is to carry blood. As we're looking at the structure of cells, when we see the structure of a protein, we can get a sense of how it's operating. So that's really what it's about. The next frontier of material study is atomic. If you want to understand something very advanced, you better have something like this in your back pocket. Look, that's a crazy article, folks, and wow, I, it's not often that I'm pretty, pretty much, uh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty much speechless or, or have to sit down on such things, but that's, um, that's pretty nuts. And, uh, the, the fact that that's not being covered in the mainstream press that I know of, it, that's pretty nuts. I'll put some feelers out to a few people I know and just say, Hey, have you seen this crop up anywhere else? But yeah, folks, um, very, very interesting one, that one. And again, folks, it just goes to show those people out there who say, Oh, well, there's nothing big to UFOs or UAPs, whatever you want to call them. And here you've got a top, top scientist studying brain damage, purported brain damage that people have from interacting with these craft. So be it from the electromagnetic field or radiation or whatever it is. Not only that, but then these different isotopes in this metal, which again, that goes back 
at least since Art Bell's days, when he had Art's parts, and he had metallurgy labs look at the stuff and find these altered isotopes. Yeah, folks, again, it's just like another 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 tile drops into place in the in the giant mosaic that is the UFO Enigma. So from one of the main subjects here at the Paranormal Sun, which is ETs, UFOs, etc., on to another one, which is Ancient Mysteries. Now, I saw this article, and I just couldn't pass it up, my friends. This one is from, let's see here, from Live Science. And this says, 14 biggest historical mysteries that will probably never be solved. And this is from Owen Jarrus. Will we ever find Cleopatra's tomb or the Ark of the Covenant? Some mysteries may never be resolved. There are some historical mysteries that may never be solved. From the date that Jesus was born, to the identity of Jack the Ripper, to the location of Cleopatra's tomb. Sometimes that's because the re relevant excavated material has been lost, or an archaeological site has been destroyed. Other times it's because new evidence is unlikely to come forward, or the surviving evidence is too vague to lead scholars to a consensus. The lack of answers only makes these enigmas more intriguing. Here, Live Science takes a look at 14 of these historical questions that may never have definitive explanations. And folks, these are some top-of-the-pops hits for historical mysteries. So the first one, was there a real King Arthur? The story of King Arthur has been told and retold numerous times, over more than a thousand years. Camelot, the Knights of the Round Table, the Wizard Merlin, and the Sword Excalibur are all famous parts of the Arthurian tales. However, if King Arthur did really exist, the reality was likely less magical. The earliest surviving accounts date to the 9th century, and tell of a leader, perhaps not even a king, who fought several battles against the Saxons. Even the accuracy of these accounts is debatable. There is a number of sites in Britain that legends link to King Arthur, such as Tintagel, a coastal site that, has supposedly, that was supposedly King Arthur's home. But excavations have not confirmed whether Arthur ever lived there or even existed. Ultimately, it seems unlikely that scholars will ever know for sure whether there was a real King Arthur or whether the man was purely fiction. Okay, so the next one is, who was Jack the Ripper? In 1888, Jack the Ripper killed at least five women in London, mutilating their bodies. A number of letters, supposedly from the Ripper, were sent to police, taunting officers' efforts to find the Ripper. Whether any of them were actually written by the Ripper is a matter of debate among scholars. The name Jack the Ripper comes from these letters. Needless to say, the Ripper was never found, and over the years, dozens of people have been brought up as possible candidates. In his 2012 book, Jack the Ripper, The Hand of a Woman, John Morris suggests that a woman named Lizzie Williams was the Ripper, although other Ripper experts cast doubt on it. It appears unlikely that the true identity of the Ripper will ever be known for sure. Now, I remember back in the 80s seeing a TV special uh, basically saying they'd solved it and that Jack the Ripper was this um, uh, this Polish doctor, I think it was, and the other one was that it was this a uh, member of the royal family that was basically insane and that each time he broke out they could correspond it to one of these murders by jack the ripper so again there have been so many um guesses 
as to who it was. And I mean, hey, it's it's great for authors. Go out there. At that time, there were no fingerprints in, in that in the 1880s. Well, they didn't know how to identify the fingerprints anyway. So again, I mean, what have you got to lose? You're not going to slander anyone that's alive, right? And it's a seller. I mean, Jack the Ripper is has got legs, as the saying goes, in the uh, printing business. You can write articles about Jack the Ripper all day, and there's always someone who will be interested in it. So here's the next one is, where is Jimmy Hoffa? Here's a, here's a, here's a hint. He's dead. The Teamster Union leader, known for his involvement in organized crime, disappeared in Oakland County, Michigan on July 30, 1975, and is presumed to be dead. The identity of his killers and the location of his body are ongoing mysteries. Police and forensic anthropologists have searched a number of sites in Detroit and Oakland County to no avail. One popular theory was that Hoffa's body was buried beneath Giant Stadium in New Jersey. However, this theory has been debunked. On October 25th and 26th, 2021, FBI agents visited a former landfill in New Jersey to conduct a site survey, according to the New York Times. The survey is a follow-up to a deathbed confession by a landfill worker claiming that people had changed, had charged he and his father with burying Hoffa's body in a steel barrel under the dump in 1975. The agents apparently didn't find the steel barrel. The identity of the killer is also unclear. Before his death in 2006, Richard the Iceman Kuklinski, yep, a hitman claimed to have killed Hoffa and dumped his body in a scrapyard. The Guardian reported, an author named Philip Carlo visited Kuklinski in prison before he died and wrote a book on Kuklinski's confessions. After the book came out, a number of police officers cast doubt on the confession in the media interviews. As the years go by, it appears increasingly unlikely that Hoffa's remains will ever be found. Now, the story that I heard, and it's pretty, to me, it's pretty plausible, is that he was basically put in the trunk of the car, of a car, and then the car was crushed and recycled, melted down as as they do. So there would be nothing left of that body. Where is Cleopatra's tomb? Ancient writers claim that Cleopatra the seventh and her lover Mark Antony were buried together in a tomb after their deaths in 30 BC. The writer Plutarch, who lived from AD 45 to 120, wrote that the tomb was located near a temple of Isis, an Egyptian goddess, and was a lofty and beautiful monument containing treasures made of gold, silver, emeralds, pearls, ebony, and ivory. The location of the tomb remains a mystery. In 2010, Zahi Hawass, yep, the infamous Zahi Hawass, Egypt's former antiquities minister conducted excavations at a site near Alexandria, now called Tapasiris Magna, which contains a number of tombs dating to the era when Cleopatra VII ruled Egypt. While many interesting archaeological discoveries were made, Cleopatra VII's tomb was not among them. Hawass reported in a series of news releases. Archaeologists have noted that even if Cleopatra's tomb does survive to this day, it may be heavily plundered and unidentifiable. Now, this is one of the top ones. Who killed JFK? This is probably the biggest mystery in American history that will never be resolved to everyone's satisfaction. And again, folks, I would argue that if you wrote a book today about this with a new spin on it, it would zoom to the top of the charts because the JFK assassination thing is one of the touchstones 
not only of American history, but world history that people are just fascinated by. Not that he was assassinated. Don't don't get me wrong, but the the ins and the outs and the whys. Why was he assassinated? And I've got my own thoughts on it, but but we'll leave that because sooner or later I will get around to JFK. On November the 22nd, 1963, President JFK was shot in Dallas by Lee Harvey Oswald, although some speculate that he wasn't the only one shooting. On November the 24th, before Oswald could stand trial, Oswald was fatally shot by nightclub owner Jack Ruby. Ruby died of lung cancer on January the 3rd, 1967. The most widely accepted explanation is that Oswald killed JFK on his own and Ruby killed Oswald on his own volition. Ruby's stated motivation was to spare Jacqueline Kennedy the the discomfiture of Oswald coming back to trial. However, there is still a significant number of professional historians, along with many amateurs, who do not agree with this explanation, and since JFK's death, numerous alternative explanations have been brought forward by historians and amateurs alike. Given that significant new evidence is unlikely to appear, a firm consensus will probably never be reached. Fully agree with that. Was Caesarian truly Caesar's son? There's a bit of a curveball, didn't expect that one. In 47 BC, Cleopatra VII gave birth to a son named Caesarian, who she claimed was the son of Julius Caesar. Cleopatra named Caesarian as co-ruler of Egypt in 44 BC, and surviving art depicts mother and son as co-rulers. However, whether the child was truly Caesar's son is uncertain. Caesar never acknowledged the child as his own. One of Caesar's sons, uh, one of Caesar's friends, Gaius Oppius, even wrote a pamphlet denying that Caesarian was Caesar's son. Cleopatra died by suicide after she and Mark Antony were defeated by Octavian in 30 BC, and Caesarian was killed not long after that. With no remains of Julius Caesar or Caesarian surviving, it is unlikely that scholars will ever be able to determine with certainty whether Caesar was truly Caesarian's father. Is there money? Is there a money pit on Oak Island? Well, there is a money pit, but is there anything or was there anything in the money pit? I think is the important question. For more than two centuries, stories have circulated that Oak Island, located off of Nova Scotia, Canada, held a money pit of buried treasure, supposedly left by the pirate Captain William Kidd, 1645 to 1701. Over that time, numerous expeditions costing millions of dollars of travel to the island, searching for the lost treasure to no avail. Despite centuries of searching, no treasure has been found on Oak Island. Well, that's not true. Very little treasure has been found on Oak Island. They've definitely found some coins and bits during the Curse of Oak Island series. Nevertheless, that doesn't stop people from trying to find it. A History Channel show called The Curse of Oak Island follows a modern-day expedition. The show was just renewed for a fourth season in 2016. Just renewed. I thought this article was new, folks. Is the Copper Scroll treasure real? That's another fascinating one. Another treasure tale that will probably never be resolved is more ancient. In 1952, a Copper Scroll was found by an archaeologist in a cave along with other Dead Sea Scrolls, at the site of Qumran. As its name suggests, the writing was engraved onto a copper scroll. The scroll records a vast amount of hidden gold and silver treasure, 
so much, in fact, that some scholars believe that it is impossible for it to exist. The scroll dates back the scroll dates back more than 1900 years to a time when the Roman Empire controlled the Qumran area. There were a number of revol revolts against Roman rule at the time the scroll was written, and scientists have hypothesized that the treasure was hidden to prevent its capture by Roman forces. Whether the treasure is real, where exactly it was hidden, whether it was ever found, and whether it could still exist today are all mysteries that will likely never be solved. The fate of the Ark of the Covenant, and that one would be one of the very top ones in most people's books of unsolved historical mysteries. In 587 BC, the Babylonian army under King Nebuchadnezzar II conquered Jerusalem, sacking the city and destroying the first temple, a building used by the Jewish people to worship God. The first temple contained the Ark of the Covenant, which carried tablets recording the Ten Commandments. The fate of the Ark is unclear. Ancient sources indicate that the Ark was either carried back to Babylon or hidden before the city was captured. It's also possible that the Ark was destroyed during the city's sacking. In any event, the Ark's location is unknown. Since the disappearance, a number of stories and legends about the Ark's fate have been told. One story suggests the Ark eventually made its way to Ethiopia, where it is kept today. Another story says the Ark was divinely hidden and will not appear until a new Messiah arrives. When was Jesus born? While many Christians today celebrate December the 25th as the birth of Jesus, he likely was not born on this day. Well, almost certainly not. The date, December 25th, may have been chosen because it's close to the time of Saturnalia, a Roman festival that celebrated the god Saturn. The earliest records of December 25th being the birthday of Jesus date to the 4th century, more than 300 years after his birth. Ancient records suggest that early Christians were never able to agree on a date when Jesus was born, and even today many Orthodox Christians celebrate Jesus' birthday as being on January 6th or 7th. In the end, it is unlikely that the date of Jesus' birth will ever be known. In fact, even the precise year is not certain, although scholars generally agree that it was sometime around 4 BC. Were the Hanging Gardens of Babylon real? Ancient writers describe a fantastic series of gardens constructed at the ancient city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq. It's not clear when these gardens were built, but some ancient writers were so impressed by the gardens that they called them a wonder of the world. Around 250 BC, Philo of Byzantium, of, sorry, Byzantium wrote that the hanging gardens had plants cultivated at a height above ground level and the roots of the trees are embedded in an upper terrace rather than in the earth. So far, archaeologists who have excavated Babylon have been unable to find the remains of a garden that meets this description. This has left archaeologists with a question. Did the hanging gardens really exist? In 2013, Stephanie Daly, a researcher at the University of Oxford, proposed in a book that the gardens were actually located at the Assyrian city of Nineveh. Over the past two decades, both Babylon and Nineveh have suffered damage from wars and looting, and it seems unlikely that this mystery will ever be fully solved. We're just about at the end, folks, and just as well, because my voice is just about to pack it in, and I've got more recording to do tomorrow, so <laughs> it's definitely not a good sign. So this, again, this would be right at the top of most people's lists as well. Is there a city of Atlantis? Writing in the 4th century BC, the Greek philosopher Plato told a story of a land named Atlantis that existed in the Atlantic Ocean and supposedly conquered much of Europe and Africa in prehistoric times. 
In the story, the prehistoric Athenians strike back against Atlantis in a conflict that ends with Atlantis vanishing beneath the waves. While no serious scholar believes that the story is literally true, some have speculated that the legend have been could have been inspired in part by real events that happened in Greek history. One possibility is that the Minoan civilization, as it's now called, which flourished on the islands of Crete until about 1400 BC, could have inspired the story of Atlantis. Although Crete is in the Mediterranean and not the Atlantic, Minoan, <coughs> Minoan settlements suffered considerable damage during the eruption of Thera, a volcano in Greece. Additionally, archaeologists found that the Minoans were eventually overcome or forced to join with a group of people called the Mycenaeans, who were based on mainland Greece. It's unlikely that this debate will be ever fully settled. Well, the answer of Atlantis, short of somebody actually finding it, there will definitely not... I mean, it's one of the most contentious things in archaeology and history in general. What was Jesus really like? The earliest surviving Gospels date to the 2nd century, almost a 100 years after the life of Jesus, although recently it was announced that a possible 1st century fragment had been found. The lack of surviving 1st century texts about Jesus leave biblical scholars with a number of questions. When were the Gospels written? How many of the stories actually took place? What was Jesus like in real life? Archaeological investigations of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, reveal more about the environment in which he grew up. More recently, scientists discovered a first-century house that, centuries after Jesus' time, was venerated as being the house that Jesus grew up in, but whether it was actually Jesus' house is unknown. Although new research will provide more insight, scholars think it's unlikely they will ever fully know what Jesus was really like. Where is the Holy Grail? Again, <laughs> They didn't pull any punches. These these are definitely some of the most uh, biggest questions ever as far as historical stuff. The Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus drank from at his last supper with his disciples before his crucifixion, has never been found and almost certainly never will be. In fact, it wasn't until the Middle Ages that there was much interest in it. After those writings, some of the King Arthur stories described the search for the Holy Grail as a quest that King Arthur and his knights took on. There are no serious scholarly attempts to find the Holy Grail, although it continues to be popular in fiction, being used as a plot device in films like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where it was used to heal Indiana Jones after he was shot by the Nazis. So yeah, folks, that is a pretty comprehensive list. As for the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, when I was a young lad, from a historical perspective, I was fascinated with the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Hanging Gardens of Babylon were right at the top of it. I was always fascinated. I always wanted to see them in real life. Now, I remember watching a documentary. Again, History Channel, National Geographic, not sure. Could have been Discovery. But it was basically them saying that they thought maybe it was in Nineveh, in which was an Assyrian city. Uh, and it was interesting. They went through it really thoroughly, went and showed the thing, and they were basically showing this site where it could have been the 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 size as according to some of the writings and everything else. Really fascinating stuff to me. 
Well, folks, I do find hope that you found interest in those stories. Again, thank you to Trey and Jeff for sending me through the articles that you did. And I don't know quite what we're going to do next week as we get into Christmas week. We might only have one episode. Who knows? But uh, I'll get something out there for you. I just don't know if I'm going to have time to get two episodes out. But I hope that you enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, well, it's coming out on the weekend. So rest of your weekend. Enjoy your week as we head into Christmas. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. And I'll talk to you soon.